We are in the second week out of John 7. We've kind of taken a two-week hiatus. It's actually out of John. It's a detour, I guess. It's a bypass that brings us back to John 7. Uh, If you remember John 7, Jesus stood up and made this promise about life that those who believed in him would have. And so last week, We talked about what it meant in verse 39 when he said, John said, the spirit was not yet given, this spirit that would bring life. Jesus was talking about in John 7, 37 and 38. John the apostle writes and says this was about the spirit who wasn't yet or wasn't yet given. And so last week we saw that typically in the Old Testament when it talked about the Holy Spirit, it was coming upon someone. It was at least a temporary empowerment for that person to accomplish whatever it was God wanted them to do or have done. But we saw that upon was a key word and that temporary was a key word. We talked about Saul and David in that context, that poor David had seen Saul lose the spirit. Spirit had been on Saul, Saul had prophesied, the spirit left Saul. We talked about David's prayer in Psalm 51, he's in that context, Lord, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. This isn't a prayer of a Christian. This is a prayer of an Old Testament saint who had seen the Spirit come and seen the Spirit go. Then the key contrast in the New Testament related to what Jesus promised was now the Holy Spirit comes since Pentecost in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes in us, not on us, but in us now. This is why Jesus could make that claim in Matthew 28. He's not physically here, but he told the disciples, I'll be with you always till the end of the age. How is that accomplished? It's by a spirit who's in us. And that was the key distinction. Paul says we're temples of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is within us. So today, that was verse 39. We're going to look at verse 38. What does it mean to have a full, abundant, overflowing life? We want to talk this morning about the quality of the life Jesus was talking about. Before we do, I'm making two disclaimers. One is this, just based on time. In my view, this issue about the benefit of the presence of the Holy Spirit may be um, one of the most neglected and uh, most important things we could talk about. And I say that in this sense, that this is the promise. The Spirit in us is the promise of life or overflowing life. And if you ask yourself on any given day, what's my life quotient look like today? What's my spiritual gas tank look like? Most of us are running on fumes. And this is true in general. If you take polls, questions, done this for years, and ask people where they're at spiritually, most Christians, they know Christ and they're going to heaven, but they live like spiritual paupers running on spiritually empty tanks. This is a shame, and this is what I meant earlier in praying. There's so much that's available to us that we simply don't take advantage of. And all of that that God wishes to communicate to us is through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And this is why I say hard to overestimate the importance of this topic, the Holy Spirit in us communicating God's life. In one morning in 30 minutes, we obviously aren't going to do any more than just crack the door a little bit in talking about one of the most important subjects we can talk about. So that's the first disclaimer. The second is this. I consider myself a poor guide or model or teacher in regards to this. Most of my spiritual life, my question to the Lord has been, where's the beef related to this passage and these verses? Where is this overflowing sense or presence 
of the Holy Spirit, this abundant life. So uh, I'm going to share with you what I can from the scriptures, and uh, you'll just know it's coming from a, a cracked pot, and that's the way it is. We'll go back into John 7 to start off, to jump off again this morning. If you remember the context, Jesus is in the temple precinct at the Feast of Tabernacles, and as the water was poured out there in the ceremony, Jesus cried out, John 7, 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Let me paraphrase this verse for you. This is helpful for me. It clarifies my thinking about what we're really talking about. This is my paraphrase. John 7, 38. Those who believe in me will from themselves have a never-ending supply of life. Let me say that again. Those who believe in me will from within themselves have a never-ending supply of life. And obviously here we're not talking about physical breathing. We're talking about the experience of spiritual life, which is God himself. God is life apart from other things. The reason this helps me in my own mind rephrase, when we start asking what this looks like, if we can clarify what exactly Jesus is referring to, that's a helpful place to start. Water is a helpful analogy, but it's only an analogy. Jesus is not talking about water. He's talking about life, and I would say life in all capital letters. He's talking about the quality or the experience of life as God intends us to experience. So when Jesus talks here, water's the analogy, it's the picture, but life is the subject, not water, but life. So as I understand it, in John 7, 38, this verse is talking about an ever-present, never-failing, always-abundant source of life, and this is communicated to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit with us and in us. Now, just to clarify this, my paraphrase for clarity's sake, listen to a few other verses that John brings up in his gospel, a couple of which we've read already, but they reiterate this point that life is the issue. In John 4.14, this is at the well in Samaria when Jesus is having another discussion about water with a woman, and he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The water that I give, it's not really water, but it's life, and it's like a well that springs up forever, not just for a time, but forever. John 6, 33, talking about bread and food in contrast to water, Jesus says the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus, of course, identifies himself as the bread of life. He says, I've come down to give life to the world. John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. He quantifies it in John as eternal, but the issue is still life, and it's simply life that never ends. And then John 10.10, a passage we'll look at in the future, Lord willing, Jesus says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it, right along John 7, have it abundantly or overflowingly. So in each of these, it's clear that Jesus, whether he's mentioning bread or water or whether he's a shepherd, he's always talking about the same subject. And the subject in each occasion is life. It's communicating and it's experiencing 
life. So the job of the Holy Spirit, as I get it from John 7.38 and John's gospel and, and elsewhere, the, the job, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer today is to communicate life to us. Now John has much to say about that in other contexts about revealing the Father and the Son to us. That's, how, that's part of how we experience, experience this life. But it's the Holy Spirit in us is here to produce within us to help us experience the kind of quality and we could even say quantity of life that God means for us. A good follow-up question to this then becomes, uh, what does this life look like? Quantify it or qualify it. What is life, like Jesus is talking about, what does it look like? How do I know when I'm experiencing it and enjoying it? How do I know when I'm overflowing? And I think Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is the answer to this. If, you, if I hand you a packet of seeds and I say, go into your garden and plant these bean seeds, if all you see are the seeds and you don't know what bean plants are, then you'll, you're going to plant them and as they grow up, you'll see that's what beans look like. The seeds produce the fruit and here it is. Well, in Galatians 5, Paul describes the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person. So the Holy Spirit planted in the life of a person looks like this. This overflowing abundant life should at least have these characteristics. I don't think this is exhaustive and there's a lot more to be said certainly, but this is a pretty good description of what overflowing abundant life looks like. So Paul says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit or the characteristics of God's life in the believer are these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He closes saying, against such things there is no law. The law doesn't produce this and the law can't do anything against these things. These qualities, these fruits are the characteristics of the Spirit's presence in you and in me. If you've trusted Christ, Paul says, and Jesus say, you get the Spirit. And then if you say, what's the Spirit's work in my life look like? Paul says, this is what it looks like. <clears throat> if you haven't done this, it's easy to rattle off these nine words. But you know, every one of them is its own study all by itself. If you uh, have time or, or don't have time, make time, it's good to just meditate on these words. Uh, what does love mean? And in each one of these, it should look something like this. Starting with love. The presence of the Spirit in my life should mean that I experience within myself God's love for me. And then I overflow with that same characteristic of God's life, love, to those around me. God's kind of love experienced within myself, and then overflowing to those around me. And this would be true of each one of these. It's not that I'm just a reservoir or a conduit. I get the benefit. I get to experience these as my own character or character qualities, but the Holy Spirit within me is producing them. So I get the benefit of joy within myself. The Old Testament says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I get the benefit of joy within myself, and then others around me get the benefit of the overflow of this joy. They see joy coming through me 
or coming out, experience it through me. This is true of all of these. Peace as well. These things would all be studies by themselves. But this is a description. This is a brief description of what this overflowing life looks like. You might not think these sound all that great unless you know what the lack of them feels like. If you know the lack of a sense of being loved by God or wanting or needing to love someone else and you can't produce it within yourself, then you start to appreciate, I really do want that. I really do desire that. Self-control is the last one, but I guarantee if you've got problems in any one of a number of lives, you start saying to the Lord, I need self-control. I don't have it. This is true of every one of these. Every one of these fruits or characteristics. If you don't think to yourself, boy, I really appreciate that as the overflow of Christ's life in me, all you have to do is recognize the lack in your life, and then you'll say, boy, that's desirable, and I want that kind of life. I think it's very helpful to be as objective as possible. And one of the things you could do, this is an exercise you could do in just a couple minutes. Go home on your own time. Take a couple minutes and do this. Take a piece of paper. Write love. Write these down. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then 1 to 10. What's your experience quotient of love? 1 to 10. 1 is you're at the bottom. 10 is... You're overflowing with the experience of God's love. Personally experience it and overflowing it to others. Where are you at? And then go through on each one of them. And this is important. Don't, you might do this and you might say, I'm a one all the way down. So I'm going to work harder at being loving. That's the wrong thing to do. You see, in each, in each one of these, these describe the life of the Spirit. You don't produce this. This is the seed that you plant in the ground. The seed produces its own fruit. The Spirit in us produces these because it's what He is. So we don't produce these. The reason I say to do this, go down and rate yourself, is because it's helpful to say, I am to more or less degree experiencing the life of the Spirit as characterized by these qualities. So if you feel like I'm a five and I wish I were an eight in any or all of them, you don't say I'm making joy my goal. You say, Lord, how do I experience more of you? He's the deal, not the qualities. And you can work yourself hard trying to be more loving and you'll find yourself being more hateful because that's what we have to bring to the table on our own. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But anyway, it's helpful Make a Holy Spirit or Abundant Life quotient. Just go down and rate yourself in each of these categories. And if you're deficient, it's more the spirit you need. It's not the quality per se that you make your goal. It's more of the experience of the Holy Spirit within you. So if we say we've trusted Christ, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and now we know a little bit, based on these characteristics or fruits, we know a little bit of what that life looks like, and we've done our own self-assessment, and we find ourselves wanting, then the question becomes, why don't I experience more of this kind of life? Why isn't my experience of love, joy, peace, and all these others more full? I might say to myself, not only do I not overflow to others, I don't have anything within myself, or very little. And I think this is where most Christians live. Uh, I don't have a, uh, a magic wand to wave, 
to make this all right. But I think the scripture does help us address this, and that's where we're going now. So to the question, why doesn't my life look better? Why don't I experience more of the life of the Spirit? Why doesn't my life look more like Galatians 5, 22 and 23? I think we can say a couple things. The first is this. Uh, we can and should grow, and I believe that we are meant to experience these things in a very full, very overflowing way. Having said that, though, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. Paul says, while we are in this tent, this human body on planet Earth, we groan. Being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. And he's talking about glorified bodies, spiritually with Christ in heaven, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Here's a guy who'd been to heaven, who was filled with the Spirit, inspired by God, wrote most of the New Testament, and he says, as long as I'm in this body, I have this sense of dissatisfaction. And it's because I realize I'm made for something more, something higher, something better, but I'm stuck here. So Paul says, as long as we Christians are in this house of clay on planet Earth, there will always be a sense of dissatisfaction. Even if we are in significant degrees overflowing with the life of the Spirit, we're still doing so out of this cracked clay pot he described earlier. And we, because we're made for something better, we, we uh, like someone outgrowing their clothes, we want to break or get out of those old clothes and get on the ones that fit. We're made for something better. We're made, and we will one day, We'll have glorified bodies. John says we'll be like Christ. We'll see him as he is. And we will take on physically a glorified form like his own. But until then, we will always have this sense of dissatisfaction with life on the earth. And this is okay because we're made for something better. Secondly, though, I'm convinced that the greatest hindrance to you and I experiencing the fullness, the rich, overflowing, abundant life of the Holy Spirit within is because of sin, sin in our life, sin in our life. We don't talk about sin much. Sin is failure, right? It's failure to live up to God's standards. And this sounds bad, but you know, sin in any degree in us, it's a deficiency for us and it keeps us from enjoying life. Let me read a couple verses, brief verses. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who's in you. Then he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the Spirit. I've taught on this before, but I think these mean don't sin positively in what you do. Don't sin negatively in what you refuse to do. That is, if I do things that I know God doesn't want me to do, I am grieving the Holy Spirit. Remember, we take Him with Him wherever we go. And whatever we do, the Spirit's with us. God is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy. He doesn't want us sinning. He doesn't want to be hanging out while we do sinful things. It grieves Him. Just like a child can grieve a parent when the parent knows, you know better. Why are you doing this? Or don't quench the Spirit. You know, when you read the Scriptures and you're called to do something in obedience, you can say to yourself, I will or I won't. Or sometimes you probably have had the experience where maybe you're in a conversation or you're with someone and you just get this thought in your mind and you know it's not yours, that the Spirit is saying, say this to that person or do this for that person or whatever. And you say, no thanks. Not doing it, not saying it, not going there. 
and you quench the fire as it were. It's like putting out a fire. The spirit within us is this fire that wants to accomplish something and we say no thanks. Well, in both cases, when we are sinning positively by commission or sinning negatively by omission, we are <clears throat> breaking our happy fellowship with the Holy Spirit. When our kids were little, we would tell them this, we're your parents, we always love you forever, it's a given. But when you disobey, we can't have happy fellowship. That was our description. What? Because now there's something between us. It doesn't allow us to. And that's what happens when we're sinning by omission or commission. We are breaking the bonds of free fellowship that the Holy Spirit wants to have with us. So the Spirit is, as it were, constrained within us when we are sinning. It limits, as it were, His ability to communicate to us and through us these qualities of His life because we're saying, no thanks. Don't want it or I prefer to do or experience something else. Paul explains why this is going on in Galatians 5.17 when he says the flesh, that is our old sinful nature we have by birth, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The problem with us is, of course, that while we are saved and the spirit is stamped on us and lives within us, he lives in a creature that still has a sinful nature, a nature that's given to sin because that's all it can do. So the Christian has a problem going on all the time. We've got within ourselves a battle going on, the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. There's conflict. And so every day you and I are listening to messages from two different places. One is our old sinful nature and one is the Spirit of God and, and informing our mind through the truth of the Scriptures. And then we're choosing, we're making up our mind, which we're going to do, which we're going to follow. And of course, to the degree that we are giving in to the old sinful nature, we experience sin and, and that's death. To the degree that we are saying yes to the Holy Spirit, Paul characterizes this as walking with the Spirit then we're experiencing life and that overflowing, abundant characteristic of Christ alive in us, the fruit of the Spirit. But I think this is the singular reason why we don't experience more of the Holy Spirit is because we are hindering His work both by what we do and by what we refuse to do. <clears throat> the next question then becomes, well, okay, got the Spirit, know what His life looks like, realize there's a battle within and that I can hinder or help his ministry in producing life in me through what I choose to do or not do, then how do I maximize my experience of the Holy Spirit within? How do I walk more with the Holy Spirit, less following after my sinful nature's impulses? How can I do that so that I experience more of the life of the Spirit? Paul says in Galatians 5.24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. This sounds um, philosophic and academic, and we mentioned this at Easter, and I'll probably repeat myself here. But the secret to you and I actually to have power to walk free is simply the truth that 
we were crucified and buried and raised with Christ. That is our emancipation proclamation. That's it. If, if, we had not, if that were not true of us, we would be simply remaining under the power of our old sinful nature. We couldn't get out from underneath it because it's what we were. But it's through our being identified with Christ in his death that means that we can walk free of the sinful nature, even though it's still within these bodies and will be till the day we die. It's still here, but we don't have to obey it. There's a sense in which it has no power. The old sinful nature, which was the only power we had in the past, it has no power to rule over us today because, as far as God is concerned, it has already undergone the sentence of death. It can't control us. It can't constrain us unless we say yes. So the secret to liberty in life is death. The death has already been accomplished. Christ died for us, but we died with him, and that's the secret to walking free. In Colossians, Paul gives a similar thought when he says this, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Put your mind where your life now is with Christ. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? Well, you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've died, and now your life is in Christ. So act like it. Act on it. That's the secret. Paul talks, and I want to ramble for a couple minutes here in Romans 8. <clears throat> Romans 6, 7, and 8 are arguably the most important chapters in the New Testament for a Christian. Not related to our salvation from sin and its ultimate consequence, eternal death and separation from God, but related to experiencing the life of Christ while we're on the earth. You know, no matter how well or poorly we experience life on earth, once we lose these bodies, these temples of clay, and are glorified with Christ in heaven, the work's all done, and, and guys, you, you not only won't want to sin, but you couldn't sin. Couldn't sin. All temptation's gone. You'll be absolutely in Christ what God always intended you to be. No downside. But as long as we're on the earth, we've got these issues going on, and Romans 6, 7, and 8 address these, the most fully that's done in the New Testament. Let me read you just a few verses just to make the point. Romans 8, 12 and 13, Paul starts and says, Brothers, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. The flesh is the sinful nature. He told us in Romans 6, you died with Christ. That's the solution, so don't live like you're a sinner still. You're not, because you've died. Romans 7, we talked about this unhappy series of events like the period of the judges in which we sin and repent and sin and repent in Romans 7. Don't want to do it, I'm doing it, want to do it, I'm not doing it. Commission, omission. And Romans 8 was the solution. Romans 6 was the solution as to the power of sin and Romans 8 was the solution as to how we get on with life and Paul says walk with the Spirit. Here he says, if you live according to the flesh you must die. Now remember, in this context, he's talking about Christians, and this is not death, hell. This is death experience. So that you know that if you, um, if you exchange angry words with your spouse, 
angry, hurtful, bitter words, you know what the fruit of that looks like. It's death. It's distance. It's enmity. It's estrangement. It's hurt feelings. It's no good. It's death. Uh, You know, if you uh, violate the law and you see Brad's red lights coming up behind you, what do you experience? You experience death, this sinking sense of, oh, I know I did wrong and now I'm getting caught for it. Even if there's no repentance, you get death. So you know that that's all Paul's saying here. When you and I take our cues from our old sinful nature, when we act on the temptations that our sinful nature is presenting us, take our cues from it, act according to it, we get the natural outcome, which is the experience of death, whatever it looks like. James says, you remember, sin conceives and it gives birth. There's this process of we entertain a thought, we decide to act on it, we act on it, and then it always produces death. And that's what Paul's saying here. So here's a Christian. He's got the Spirit. He's walking along, but he chooses to follow the desires of the flesh. And Paul says, and this is what he gets, he gets death. So when you and I look at our lives and we feel like, where's the life? Where's the beef? Then the, we ought to ask ourselves, well, where are we living? Where are we walking? And what are we choosing? If we're experiencing a bunch of death in our life, again, whatever it looks like, it's probably because those are the decisions we're making. It's the absolute, predictable, necessary fruit that comes from making those decisions. Can't be otherwise. He says in verse 13, But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You want to experience life? This isn't eternal life in the sense of you get saved. This is the experience of life on earth. Paul says, if, you, if by the Spirit you're putting to death, you're saying no to the temptations, the impulses, the thoughts, the desires of the sinful nature. He says, when you do that, you live. You experience life. You get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. So boy, you know, if we take our tests and our quotient is low, the fruit's not the goal, the Spirit is. And by the Spirit, we're called to put to death the deeds of the body, the flesh. Then we get life. Then we get life. He says, verse 14 down, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You don't have a, you've not received a spirit of slavery. You guys know, when you get the Spirit and are saved, you're not under a law, an external law by which now you try and measure up. But we're under the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And under the new covenant, what does God do? He writes the law, his moral law, not the law, not the law of Moses, the moral law, on our hearts. The spirit within us wants to produce that which is right. We don't have to go work at it. We don't try and observe an external law. We have the spirit within us conforming us to the very image of Christ. It's not a spirit of slavery. He says, if we are children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering in this context in Romans 8 is the suffering of a Christian who experiences the temptations of the sinful nature and fights against it. This is is mind-blowing to me. When he says it's not worth being compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, he's really saying this, guys... Sometimes you're facing these temptations and you feel like it's this huge battle. 
and it requires all your will and strength, and sometimes that's not enough, to choose to do right and to choose to say no to the sinful nature. And Paul says this is nothing. It's not even worthy to be compared. We think we're fighting this great battle, and Paul says it's nothing. It's nothing. But that's the suffering he's talking about. It's the experience of the Christian being tempted and attempting to be led by his sinful nature when he's got a new nature that doesn't want to go there and the Holy Spirit who doesn't want to go there. That's the suffering. It's a person who's got schizophrenic, if you will, two lives within one body, and they're wanting to go separate directions, and that is the cause of this kind of suffering. But Paul says, if by the Spirit's power within you, you act on the truth that you are identified with Christ, put to death the things of the past, and walk with the Spirit, then you get life. Then you experience life. Our ability to enjoy the water of life in the presence of the Holy Spirit is directly tied to our belief in our union with Christ. This is, Lord, I understand I'm with you, and now I'm going to act on that. Now I know what my position in Christ is, and now I'm going to make decisions consistent with what I understand to be the truth. Let me close with this example. You know, we live in a country and a culture that's obsessed with bodies, right? Obsessed with the physical. Obsessed with the physical. We live in a country and in a culture in which we all want to look like Greek gods and goddesses, right? But most of us look like couch potatoes. Why is that? There's a discrepancy here, isn't there? You know, we're an obese nation. You know, the statistics are fr frankly alarming from a, from a public health st standpoint. Uh, uh, diabetes in kids, uh, obesity in small children, etc. Now, for some of us, we might have a genetic predisposition to things. There, there's some factors that are outside our control. But for most of us, most of these factors are absolutely controllable. But you know that the difference between our desire to look like Greek gods and goddesses and our couch potatoes life in between this is an industry. It's the weight loss industry. It is, and you, you know this is true. Turn on your TV, I think, any time, day or night. Open any newspaper, any magazine, and you'll see ads for weight loss schemes of one sort or another. So there's weight loss schemes, there's weight loss equipment, there's weight loss pills. So we've got abersizers or something. We're going to keep our tummy tucked. And uh, the exercise machines, you know, there's, all, there's, there's one that you can exercise 15 minutes a day and stay fit. Have you guys seen this one? I'm serious, they say. But it only costs $15,000 delivered to your house. So we've got all this equipment. We've got all these schemes. We've got all the diets. We've got pills. We've got pills so we eat whatever we want and then we dream as the fat burns away as we sleep at night. And then if that one doesn't work, we take the pills that suppress our desire to eat, right? So we've got gimmicks galore. You know, the unhappy truth, though, is this. If you really want to make your temple look like as much as possible the Greek god or goddess that you know you really are within, then you know that it really comes down to some some unglorious realities like this. You eat the right kinds of food. You eat the right quantities of food. And you exercise. And it doesn't sound glorious. And it, it's not the magic wand. It's not instantaneous. But you know if you've lived this that it'll get you there. That I do these common sense things. Eat the right things. 
eat the right quantities or the right time or whatever, stand none of which I do, <laughs> and, get, and get exercise, not because we're obsessed with our bodies, but because some level of exercise is necessary just to make everything work the way it's supposed to. So this is the unhappy reality is that. To the degree that I'm going to look like that Greek god or goddess that I know I am, it means that I do these simple, mundane things like eat right, get some exercise. And I always feel a little disappointed that in the end I have to say these same things about people's spiritual lives. You know, the truth is we are bound for glory. C.S. Lewis said, and I think rightly so, if you could see your neighbor as they'll appear in heaven, you'd want to fall down and worship them right now. And that's true. When we're glorified in heaven, we'll be creatures, in a sense, worthy of glory because we bear Christ's image, His glory. So that's all true. But you know, we know we're heading there, but down here on earth, on our spiritual workouts, to experience the life of Christ to the degree that we are able, it requires no less common sense things, just like physical fitness, our spiritual experience of the abundant overflowing life gets down to things as simple as I read my Bible. That is, I eat the right kind of food and I avoid the wrong kind of food. There's a ton of, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, television, radio, internet, magazines, newspapers, things that are inappropriate, that are junk food, that just make me yucky inside. Or I can choose to eat right, spiritual and emotionally, inform my mind, fill my thoughts with things that are appropriate and helpful. And the scripture would be at the top of that list. I can eat right. I can eat when I need to, which means for me every day. I was reading something this morning about... Uh, can't even remember which psalm, day and night. Maybe it was Psalm 1, day and night. You know, I found sometimes for myself, boy, I have my quiet time and I don't crack my Bible the rest of the day. I think, I need it. I get three squares a day, I guarantee, and a little snack maybe two times in the day too. I need to be doing that same kind of thing with the scriptures. I need to eat right, the right kinds of things. And I need to say no to the wrong kinds of things. And if we'll do some simple things like this, if we'll feed our mind the right kind of food, if we'll exercise the discipline of saying no to those temptations that come up, to omit or to commit, to do the things we know we shouldn't or to, to not do the things we know we should, it won't happen overnight, just like you don't see, you don't shed pounds overnight, but it will be real and it will be lasting. And I guarantee if you do this, eat the right food spiritually, exercise. We're saying no to the sinful nature. We're saying yes to the Holy Spirit. I guarantee if you take a yearly measure of your experience of the abundant overflowing of life characterized by Galatians 5, I guarantee that your quotient will go up over the years and you'll say, I am experiencing more life than I did before. And it won't be because of a magic wand or a pill, but it'll be because day by day, you're eating the right foods, you're getting your exercise, you're saying no to the things of the flesh, the sinful nature that's always with us, and you're doing the right things, you're being led by, you're walking with the Holy Spirit. That's where it's at. So it's not romantic in that sense, but it produces results. 
And if you've met mature Christian men or women, people that you meet that when you go away, you think, I want to be like that, I guarantee this is what they're doing. Because spiritual life and maturity and this overflow of the Spirit of Christ doesn't come in any other way. It can't come in any other way. But it does come this way. This is where we want to head. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thanks for the rich, full provision you've made for every one of us to experience within ourselves your overflowing, abundant, desirable life and to be a vessel by which you bless those around us with more of the same. Father, I pray that you would help us to worship you day by day by feeding our souls on the truth of your word and by those things that help us remember where our life is with Christ that keeps our mind and our hearts on the right things and in the right direction. Lord, that you help us with your Spirit's help, Lord, to say no to the temptations of our sinful nature which can't do anything but sin. Holy Spirit, help us to not quench you and to not grieve you, but to walk with you, to be filled with you. Lord, might each one of us be able to look back next year at a life of spiritual discipline, just in the modest sense, Lord, if nothing else, of feeding ourselves on your word, saying no to our sinful impulses, spending time with you in prayer, fellowshipping with the saints, the spiritual exercises, Lord, Help us a year from now to look back and say we've experienced more of your promise to overflow us, to fill us up and pour out from us more of your glorious, desirable life. In Jesus' name, amen.